0: Let's pray. Father God, I come before you and I just ask that uh, you'll help give me clear thoughts and a clear mind and a real focus that I might proclaim your word accurately. I just pray for the hearts of the hearers here as we, as we proclaim this important message, Lord, that you might carry the words from the text to their hearts, that their hearts might be tender and softened and receptive to, to hearing your word. Give them understanding, Lord. Help me to speak clearly. And Lord, I just pray that as a result, you'll make us a church that is not gospel-phobic. Lord, that we will freely proclaim your gospel to the lost. Lord, may we be encouraged by this time together and convicted when appropriate. And I just pray that this will be done to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Webster's Dictionary defines a phobia... As a persistent, irrational fear of a specific object, activity, or situation that leads to a compelling desire to avoid it. Now, there are many types of phobias. For instance, you have octophobia, which is a fear of the figure eight. You have something which I might be stricken with right now, homulo- wait, homilophobia, which is a fear of sermons. Theological phobia, fear of theology. Ergophobia, which I've been accused of in the past, which is fear of work. Anglophobia, fear of England. Francophobia, which is fear of France. You probably have people who are anglophobic in France and francophobic in England. It's interesting. You have gamophobia, which is fear of marriage. Aneptophobia, fear of staying single. You have haitophobia, which is fear of hell. Uranophobia, which is fear of heaven. Lacanophobia, which many children have, which is the fear of vegetables. You have carnophobia, which is fear of meat, and something I actually have and struggling with is phylacrophobia, which is fear of becoming bald. But if I ever do reach that point and conquer that, hopefully I have chytophobia, which is the fear of hair. So there's all kinds of ailments and afflictions which we have, and one thing that did not make the list was gospelphobia. Now, that is the title of my sermon, and before we really get into it, let's see if any of us have gospel phobia. When you figured out that I was going to be talking about sharing your faith and evangelism, did your stomach begin to quake and turn in knots? Do you feel an ulcer developing in your system right now? When people talk about evangelism and sharing your faith, do you feel convicted? When the prospect of going street preaching comes before you, do you just cringe in fear and terror and just say, oh Lord, not me? Do you find yourself bypassing opportunities at Thanksgiving and Christmas time when the topic of religion comes up? Do you just tend to cower away for fear that people might think that you're a fundamentalist backwoods Jesus freak? Do you find yourself ducking away at any opportunity to share your faith and in shame because you're too cowardly to stand up for what you know is right and to share the gospel? Well, if that's the case, you have one form of gospel phobia, the unbiblical sort. The fear of sharing your faith. But it's interesting when you study the scriptures, you see that Paul also had gospel phobia. He had a unique form of gospel phobia. The one time arch enemy of the gospel, who was the coat check man for the murderers of Stephen, who went from house to house, ravaging Christian homes, dragging them off to prison in stormtrooper like fashion the man who even after he converted, everyone was still scared of him because he acquired such a notorious reputation. This man who met Jesus on the road to Damascus and with all the zeal that he persecuted the church with, redirected it to build the church and proclaim the gospel, had gospel phobia. However, Paul did not have the gospel, and the unbi- gospel phobia in the unbiblical sense. What he feared, more than anything, he feared hindering the gospel. Instead of fearing sharing the gospel, he had a tremendous fear of not sharing the gospel. Paul did not fear death. He did not fear pain. He did not fear loneliness, nor did he fear the number eight. But what he did fear was being silent and in any way hindering or restricting the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our text today, First Corinthians nine, fifteen through eighteen. First Corinthians nine fifteen through eighteen. Paul writes, But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Today we're going to examine the heart of a man who beat for the Lord. And who bled for non-Christians around the world. A man who had a desperate fear of not sharing his faith. And we're going to extract three lessons from him. Three cures for unbiblical gospel phobia. So that you might go out and fearlessly share your faith. That you will no longer have the unbiblical gospel phobia of the world where you fear sharing your faith. But you might have a tremendous fear and anxiety about being silent about the gospel. Those three cures are the following. They are to revere the power of the gospel, to fear the creator of the gospel, and to clear the way of the gospel. To revere the power of the gospel, fear the creator of the gospel, and clear the way for the gospel. Now, place yourself in Paul's situation. You are on your second missionary journey, journeying from town to town around the Mediterranean, proclaiming the gospel, and you come across a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth geographically is situated similar to Panama is situated, where you have a large land mass, and then you have another large man mass, and a narrow stretch of land that connects two great oceans. In the Mediterranean, Corinth had two ports on the Ionian and the Aegean Sea that was separated by a mere four miles. And so what would happen would would be that all the Mediterranean mariners would get their ships and their boats, and they'd put their boats on skids to make a four-mile trek across land and save an otherwise difficult and arduous journey. So what happened was... Corinth became the city of commerce and city of trade. It began to attract uh, the Athenian Games, which next to the Olympics was one of the biggest athletic spectacles in the Mediterranean at that time. It also had an acropolis with a, with a very prominent temple to Aphrodite, Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love. So there's a tremendous tourist infusion too. And so what happened when you have a real wealthy and prosperous city is people no longer had to concern themselves with mere survival. They didn't have to worry about whether or not rain would come and water the crops as much as they worried about this. What am I going to do to pass the time? And so what happened was Corinth became a pleasure-seeking city, a city of sin, to the point where to Corinthianize was a dirty word. And so you enter the city detestable, probably equivalent to to an Amsterdam of today. And you look at all the sin, but yet you see that the gospel message of Jesus Christ is having its effect. And that the Lord is calling out people to himself. That there is a body of believers that is very prevalent and active in Corinth. And so active are they, and so encouraged are you, that you stay there for a full 18 months. And you've never stayed anywhere that long. In fact, the longest place you've ever stayed was three years in Ephesus. So 18 years, 18 months of fruitful ministry, where you develop deep relationships with them, you shepherd them, you disciple them, you help them heal their marriages. You see them go from being fornicators and immoral idolaters to godly men and women. And so, at the end of 18 months, you move on as you sense that the Lord is calling you to go someplace else to minister. Yet, to, to your dismay, you hear rumors and words from messengers from Corinth that the sickening cancer of the world has once again infected the church. People are sliding back into immorality. They're going back to their old pagan ways. People begin to question you, question your motivation, and tend to justify their own sin by saying you don't know anything and creating some sort of false sense of spirituality. And so what do you do? You write a letter. And in the letter, you not only use your... your your friend, stature as a friend and as a father figure, but your full weight as an apostle. Why? Because you want these people to cease from sin. You want them to live a righteous and holy life because you care for them. But as with many immature Christians, when confronted with truth, instead of introspectively, introspectively examining their own hearts to see if what you're writing is true, they turn their guns towards Paul And they begin to accuse him. Who are you, Paul, to tell us what to do? Who do you think you are? And what we find in 1 Corinthians is a man defending his ministry, not for his own sake, but because he wants to make the gospel real to them. He wants them to embrace the things of God instead of the things of the world. And as we get into our text, we see that he is defending his ministry, defending himself against all accusations so that they might fully embrace the gospel. And so we learn a few messages, a few lessons from him. The first one brings us to our first point, the first cure for gospel phobia is to revere the power of the gospel. In 1915, he says this, through 16a, but I have used none of these things and I am not writing these things that I may be done so in my case. What we see is that Paul was not interested in his apostolic rights. So I'll get into this. Paul had the right as an apostle, to make his living from the gospel. He defends that very clearly in chapter 9. But what people did in Corinth was they turned it on him. They said, Paul, if you are such a wonderful, godly man, how is it that you're still making tents? After all, isn't that the spirit of the age? If you're a good actor, shouldn't you make your living from being an actor? If if you're such a good actor, why are you serving me burgers at Red Robin, right? Right? if you are a professional that equates with good and proficient and people were accusing paul of being less than spiritual less than apostolic because he chose not to be a burden because as as excuse me as fiercely as he argued for his right to use those rights he argued that he does not want to use those rights He doesn't want to have the allegation of being a a Rasputin or a Jim Baker who makes his living by exploiting other individuals. A religious charlatan, if you will. He wanted to stay as far away from that as possible so that no one might accuse him of getting in the way of the gospel. So he defends his rights as an apostle so that people will believe the message. And he also divorces himself from his rights so that people will have an unhindered access to the gospel itself. He talks about, but I have used none of these things. He doesn't want to discredit the Lord's ministry at all. In fact, he would rather die, he would rather die than discredit the Lord's ministry. Or face any accusation at all that he is in some way discredited in the Lord's ministry. He would rather die. But we have to ask ourselves, we see in second half of verse, For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. What does Paul mean by boast? Now you hear the term boast, and, and I've always been taught that boasting, no one likes someone who brags, right? No one likes someone who's really stuck on themselves and always boasting about their accomplishments and who they are. But we see that Paul was a boasting in the worldly sense. In fact, whenever Paul boasts, it is in direct contrast to the boast of the world. He's exalting in God, or he's exalting in his weakness, So weak, in fact, that he is dependent, and utterly dependent, upon God. We see in 1 Corinthians through 31 he says this, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That, just as it is written, this is key, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to brag about anything, if Paul is going to brag about anything, it's going to be about what the Lord has done. He's going to brag about the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 11.30, Paul, after detailing being beaten and suffering for the sake of the gospel, says this, If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. He will boast in the fact that he is such a meek and helpless individual that he has no choice but to rely upon God fully. That is what he is boasting in. Paul does not want to brag about what a great apostle he is. He does not want to boast in his motivational techniques to get people to receive the gospel. He firmly believed, as we will see later, that the gospel itself contains sufficient power. is able to stand alone. It didn't need to have any human marketing techniques or emotional manipulation or even a, a healthy modern dance to assist it. What it needed was just a sheer unhindered power. And he would rather die than give that up. He did not want to obstruct the gospel at all. And so we have to ask ourselves, if Paul embraced the power of the gospel, if he didn't want to die to get in the way of the gospel, then we have to ask two questions. What is the gospel? And two, why is it so powerful? What is the gospel and why is it so powerful? Now we can find the gospel succinctly stated by Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now you look at this and you look at, let's say, the Calvary Bible Church Gospel tract. And you think, Dave... Why don't we just have this in our tract? Isn't that enough? Well, really what the tract is and what most plan of salvations are, it is an elaboration of this. Christ died. Well, why did he have to die? Well, he had to die for our sins. Well, what is sin? Why does Christ have to die for sin? Basically, the gospel tract is an exposition on this concept that Christ died for our sin. We sinned, we rebelled against God and God in his righteousness had to punish that and he sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. And that when we embrace it, we have the hope of heaven and the hope of the resurrection. And that is embraced by faith and repentance. That is the core of the gospel message. It is not found in Islam, it is not found in the Hindu religion, it is not found by just observing nature, it is found in the text of Scripture itself. There is one name under heaven whereby you must be saved. People don't get saved by introspection. They don't get saved by taking nature walks. People can only get saved if they hear the proclaimed message of the gospel. Romans 10, 13-15 says this, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent just as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things people can only be saved when the gospel message is proclaimed to them people can only be saved when they hear or read the gospel the work of Christ might be might be compared to the work of a laboratory where all the research and manufacturing produced the cure to cancer now for that cure to actually take its effect, people have to do what? have to swallow it, right? So how do you get the people who need the cure the cure? The way you get get it there is through the distribution through marketing, through salesmen going out and distributing the pill now in the same way, christ's death on the cross fully accomplished our salvation, but it is incomplete to the people who will be saved until they hear the gospel message. And that is where the church comes in. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to take this message to the lost so that they might embrace it. It is through the spoken word of the gospel. And Paul committed his life to it. Who has sold out, radically committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way he did it was through unleashing its power on the lost. And that takes us to Roman, Romans one sixteen. Romans one sixteen, a key verse. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel has super power. Now growing up, I was very into pretending like I had superpowers. We would play Superman every once in a while, and Superman's an interesting case. He, he came from Krypton, son of Kal-El, sent to Earth, and he was imbued with superhuman powers because of the ultraviolet rays of the sun. And so I would imagine myself to be Superman, and I did more than imagine. I would put on the underoos, the cape, and I would actually fashion my hair in an S-curl. So I would pretend to be Superman, thinking that if I had these superhuman capabilities, then I could really change the world and make it a better place. But eventually, I grew out of that. After all, I was about 13 years old at the time. <laughs> and I started getting into government policy, thinking that maybe it's not in these super these Superman superpowers I could change the world, but perhaps it could be in the form of the United States government, right? the superpower of the United States, that we can use our military might, we can pass laws, we can establish the right foreign policy, and make the world a better place. And people seek after these things, right? They seek after power, power to change, thinking that that is the source of fixing all the problems of the world. But when I became a Christian, and really understood the power of the gospel, I figured out that the elixir To all of the diseases and all the problems of this world is found in the gospel. That the gospel message is truly powerful. More power than any superpower Superman or the United States of America can possibly possess. Because only the gospel can affect a man's eternal destiny. Let's say you have the power to save somebody's life. You know what you're doing? You're just postponing their death because they're going to die of something else. But only the gospel will have an eternal effect on that individual. Only the gospel can break the bondage of sin and death. Only the gospel, nothing else, can release you from the prison that sin puts you in. Only the gospel can raise people from the dead. Isn't that amazing? That within the gospel message, there is a way that people will be resurrected from the dead and have eternal life. Only the gospel can offer starving individuals hope. The power is in the gospel. It is the most powerful message ever wielded on this planet. The gospel is supernatural. It contained within the message is the ability to transform somebody's life in front of you. And Paul realized that gospel and he felt no shame in telling people about it. He didn't want to get out of the way. He didn't want to get in the way. He wanted to unleash its raw power. The gospel is like a caged lion where all you have to do is just lift up the gate and let it go forth and do its work. If you say the message clearly, the burden's off. That's all you have to do. So when thinking about this, I mean, do you really believe that the gospel is the, the conduit by which God's grace changes lives? When someone comes to you for a problem or you tempted to, maybe give them some self-help tips or to recognize first and foremost that I can't help you at all until you embrace the gospel because frankly, people aren't going to get better unless they do that. Do you, feel, do you ever underestimate the power of the gospel? Do you feel like the gospel needs an assist, like perhaps if you played in the NBA and then converted, that people will be more receptive to the gospel message then than they are now, right? Well, that's not true at all. The gospel doesn't need an assist by you. The gospel doesn't need you to be a superstar. The gospel doesn't need you to use eloquence and intelligence and impress people by your stature that when people talk to you, they say, you know what, Christians aren't so dumb after all. Right, the gospel doesn't need that the only thing that the gospel needs is for you to get out of the way that is it you speak the message clearly and then it will do its work on the hearts of those individuals so do you revere the gospel do you really believe that do you proclaim it boldly knowing that it could solve all the problems of the world do you proclaim it but still elevate yourself so that people will embrace you and the gospel at the same time it doesn't work that way Paul was unhindered. He revered the gospel. He respected the message. And that was demonstrated by how he proclaimed it to the world. The second antidote to gospel phobia can be found in verses 16b and 17. To fear the creator of the gospel. Paul writes, "...for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Now within this, there's three key motivating factors to fear in the creator of the gospel. is that Paul realized he was under compulsion. He feared disobedience, the consequences of not doing it. And three, he realized that he had a stewardship. Paul realized that he was under compulsion to preach the gospel. Now what a compulsion is, it is a, an irresistible drive to preach the gospel. It's an irresistible drive to do something. For instance, when I go to Panda Express, I tell myself every time, I'm going to try something new. I look at the egg rolls, the spring rolls, the potstickers, the Szechuan pork, sweet and sour chicken, lemon chicken, pepper chicken, Mongolian beef, and I say, I'm going to try something new. And so I'm thinking in my mind, sweet and sour pork, Dave, sweet and sour pork, just say the words, say the words, say the words. But then a thought comes to my mind i don't know what part of the chicken it comes from i know it was cooked in in fat i know that it's bathed in some sugary syrupy substance that has chemicals that would probably subtract 30 days from my life but i'm thinking orange chicken or i'm thinking orange chicken i'm trying to say sweet and sour beef And the only thing that comes out of my mouth is orange chicken. And I've had that for 20 consecutive times. There's a compulsion in me. I must have orange chicken. I can't stop it. And that's the way Paul was with the gospel. He couldn't stay silent about it. And the reason why, because he realized that he was called to proclaim the gospel. That was his purpose in life. In Galatians 1.15, then 16 he writes, But when he who had set set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Paul realized that he was set apart for a singular purpose of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now some of you might be thinking, well I wasn't really set apart to preach to the Gentiles. But I'll contend this, that you have a calling too. And your calling can be found in Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now my previous sermon, on Memorial Day... I contended that this message was not just for the disciples, but it is for the entire church. That Calvary Bible Church and you members of Calvary Bible Church have been called out to take the message that saved you to a dying and lost world. That is your calling. And with a calling, you have a responsibility. And you have to ask yourself, How faithful are you to that calling? Do you realize that you have been called to share your faith? That that is why you've been placed on earth? That evangelism is the one thing that we can do better here on earth than in heaven? That is why you're here. See, Paul feared disobeying his calling, and you should too. In fact, Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, woe in in vernacular might be equated with gnarly or large waves. You know, all that stuff. You hear Keanu Reeves say it all the time. But in the biblical sense, it was a terrifying word. Woe was a terrifying word. It suggests distress and affliction, being accursed. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 13, when talking to, this, to the Pharisees, the seven woes of the scribes and Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. And you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. The Pharisees were not only going to enter; were not only not entering heaven. They were prohibiting other people from going there. And Christ says, "Woe to you!" Speaking of false teachers, Jude writes in one eleven: "Woe to them, for they have taken the way of Cain; they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error; they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion." Awaiting false teachers is a woe. A strong sense of condemnation. Talking about the wicked city of Babylon, the the blasphemous and wicked city that opposed God in the tribulation. An angel says, Woe, woe the great city of Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Paul has gone from wishing death upon himself if he interferes with the gospel, to wishing a sense of woe, to realizing a sense of woe, is not wishing, he recognizes the reality of it, for not preaching the gospel. Paul did not fear the rocks hurled at him at Lystra. He did not fear the raging storm and the shipwreck at Malta. He did not fear being beaten. He did not fear death. He did not fear preaching the gospel to prestigious figures like Caesar and, and King Agrippa. But the thought that terrified him was this. If he abdicated his stewardship of the gospel, woe to him if he does not preach the gospel. Why? Because he was called to do that. Similarly, God has called you to preach the gospel. God has called you to preach the gospel. And what the scriptures are saying is, woe to you if you do not preach the gospel. Do you recognize that someday you'll stand before God? Teachers will, according to James 3. Elders will, according to Hebrews 13. But all of us, since we've been giving a stewardship of the gospel, will stand before God and give an account of our lives. We'll still go to heaven, but we'll have to face our Creator and let Him know that we abdicated our responsibility that we failed to preach the gospel. And what could be an otherwise rejoicing time and joyful time will turn sour. Does your lack of faithfulness in sharing the gospel haunt you? It really should. Because woe is you if you do not preach the gospel. It's a serious message. See, Paul feared the Lord's opinion rather than men's. He feared what the Lord would think about him as opposed to what other people did, which is really contrary to what we see in this day and age, where we're so concerned about impressing people, impressing our co-workers, that we forget who is really in charge, and we forget that at the end of the day, at the end of our life, we will stand before God. In the next verse, we see that Paul had a stewardship. Paul had a stewardship. In verse 17, he says, "...for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will... I have a stewardship entrusted to me. He mentions that if you were to preach the gospel voluntarily, you'd be entitled to some sort of compensation. But we know previously that he knows he's not doing it voluntarily because he's doing it under compulsion. That knowing the fear of the Lord, he persuades men. Now consider the difference between a hireling and a slave. Now if a hireling was brought in to mow your lawn and he doesn't mow your lawn, what happens? He doesn't get paid, right? He's bereft of any financial compensation. But a slave, if he mows your lawn, does he get anything? No. That's what he's supposed to do. If a slave doesn't mow your lawn and you tell him to, what happens? He gets punished. See, we live in a day and age where we think of ourselves as hirelings, hirelings rather than slaves and servants. Where I might be tempted to preach... Five ways that preaching the gospel will help you make friends. Or five ways that preaching the gospel will make you happier in life. But that is not the biblical concept of us. God has given us a commission. We are slaves and we are to proclaim it. And Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. He says this, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Notice how he recognizes his own stewardship. He's been given a trust. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any other human court. Notice he doesn't care about the opinion of men. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So in the context of sharing the gospel, he's saying the lord will judge me therefore judge nothing until the appointed time wait until the lord comes who will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and to expose the motives of men's hearts and at that time each will receive his praise from god paul had a recognition of standing in front of god at some point in time and what was he going to be evaluated for he's going to be evaluated with how well he did with the gospel what kind of steward was he with the gospel He had a sense of judgment, and that drove him to preach it unashamed. See, the criteria of this judgment is going to be based on stewardship. Now, a steward is someone who takes care of other people's property. For instance, your mutual fund manager would be considered a steward, right? So let's say you gave your life savings to your mutual fund manager. You figure the stock market is looking up, and you get excited thinking, this is going to make me a lot of money. So after about a year, you see that the stock market rises about 20%. And you think, wow, if you just invested in the Dow, I will be set. But when you talk to your mutual fund manager, you find out that you didn't make a penny. In fact, he never even invested your money. Why? Well, he tells you, well, I was too busy going on vacation and I uh, I was busy playing solitaire on the computer. I finally was able to master the game, incidentally. I can beat any game. Furthermore, I was afraid to put it in the stock market because, you know, it's so erratic, you might lose money. And finally, even if I knew how to to put it into the stock stock market, well, investor money, if I wanted to, I I don't know how to do it. I mean, how do you give your money to those brokers? I, I have no idea. Now, after your anger subsides, what will you be tempted to do? What will you do? You'll fire him, right? Because he was a terrible steward of your money. Yet Christ has given us the gospel, has given us a stewardship where we are to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Yet we care about balancing our checkbooks. We check the newspaper daily to see how our stocks are doing, even though it's been depressing lately. And we're doing all these things to manage our financial resources. But who cares? What God cares about is what kind of steward are you with the gospel? Your friends? Have they heard the gospel message? Has your family heard the gospel message? Have your neighbors heard the gospel message? See, Paul may have had more opportunities than you. He traveled from all around the Mediterranean, from continent to continent and country to country and city to city to proclaim the gospel. But the issue is this. What kind of steward are you with the opportunities given to you? Do you make the most out of every opportunity? When Christmas time comes up and you're with your unsaved family, do you bring up the gospel or do you shy away from it? I'm not saying all of us need to be street preachers, but all of us have non Christians in our lives that need to hear the gospel. Amen. So the question is are we telling them? Are we telling them? Finally, we get to the last point, which is we need to clear the way for the gospel. Verse 18. So, what then is my reward? That when I preach the Gospel, I may offer the Gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the Gospel. See in this verse, Paul reiterates a point he asks what his reward might be, and he 's not looking for any sort of compensation or financial or compensation or financial aid or any pat on the back. The only thing he wants is this: he wants the gospel to be unhindered; he wants the gospel to go freely. Throughout the world, he wants nothing to interfere with the gospel message itself. He wanted no reward. He was willing to forsake his rights as an apostle for the sake of the gospel message. You look at the free Methodist, an interesting denomination, it started by this. In the 1860s, the Methodist church, the Mainline Methodist church, had a habit of charging money to sit in the pews. You can either rent a pew or you can buy a pew. Now, if you didn't give the money, you couldn't sit in on the church service. And that applied for everyone. And so a group broke away because they believed that people should be able to hear the gospel free of charge. Money should not interfere with the gospel message, period. So when we apply it to our lives, we have certain rights, don't we? We have a right to live comfortably, to live the American dream, to have two cars, to raise a family in peace, right? Right? But at what cost? Is that interfering with your proclamation of the gospel? Are you working 70 hours a week to get that raise so you can make more money at the expense of getting involved in some sort of ministry here at church? Are you afraid of ruffling feathers at the workplace if you were to proclaim the gospel to those people? Because you know that that might interfere with your future financial plans. Are you afraid of disrupting social feathers around the neighborhood where people want to esteem you as highly you won't be as invited to as many parties because you're labeled as that fundamentalist Jesus freak family. Right? See, we all have rights that we think we're entitled to, but Paul cleared the way of the gospel and he set aside his rights. He wasn't concerned about himself as much as he was concerned about the unhindered proclamation of the gospel. So when we look at this church, and you know, I know this was a pretty heavy message, but it's true, we have to look and analyze, are we being good stewards of the gospel message? Are we proclaiming it? Are we evangelical Christians in name only, or do we actually evangelize? Now, if you do want some practical help, let me give you some help here. The first thing you need to do is if you have been a bad steward of the gospel, is to repent of your complacency. Not sharing the gospel, hoarding the message to yourself, it is sin. But just like I talked about at Communion, if it is repented, God deals with it. I mean, this might be one of the reasons why many of you feel like you've hit the glass ceiling in your walk with God and why you're not necessarily growing, because you have some unrepentant sin in your heart, and that is the sin of omission, of not sharing the gospel. But if you do confess it, the Lord is faithful and righteous to forgive, right? He tells Peter to forgive 70 times 7. He'll do the same thing. Second thing you could do is to pray for the lost, Make a list of seven names that you know, family members, friends, and pray for them on a different day of the week. Monday, pray for your father. Tuesday, pray for your mother. Pray for your neighbor on Wednesday. Thirdly, take the class. Uh, we have lots of opportunities to learn how to share your faith here. Uh, I've been offering a, an evangelism class, and you, know, you have to ask yourself this question. Some of you may not even know how to clearly articulate the gospel. You know, maybe do an experiment with your wife or your husband or your friend and try to articulate the gospel to the point where an unbeliever can understand it. Now, if you really struggle with it, you need some help, and that's what we're here at this church for. We want to help you learn how to share your faith effectively. Well, those of you who think you're pretty proficient at it, take the class anyway. I mean, wouldn't you want your mutual fund manager to study stock market trends, right? To take some seminars? Part of being a good steward is developing our gifts and developing those talents and doing that. So take the class. Go to the missions conference. Study and listen to men and women who have given their lives to proclaiming the gospel overseas and glean from their wisdom. And finally, do it. There's really no substitute for sharing the gospel than actually doing it, right? It's just a matter of stepping out, believing in the power of the gospel, revering it, knowing that you're accountable to God and taking away anything that might hinder you proclaiming the gospel. So, as a church, I hope that we are not a church that grows by stealing members from other churches. I hope that we are a church that grows because a gospel message goes forth from Calvary Bible Church, where every one of us is seeking to share their faith with their friends, and that the Lord blesses our efforts and brings in new Christians. Because all of us, corporately, are held accountable, right? Woe to me if I do not share the gospel. Woe to you if you do not share the gospel. Woe to us if we at Calvary Bible Church don't share the gospel. And we have to lift up our eyes from just earthly things. Church politics, our jobs, family matters, and think about what really matters. Look at eternity. Imagine if you were to get a, a script or get the verdict about how God would evaluate you during believer's judgment, what would he say? If we were to go future, you know, go into the future, and look at that, then come back, that might change the way we do things, right? Or if we were to find a portal that'll take us into hell for exactly one minute, and then we could step out again, we'd all be different people, right? See, we know that theoretically. I don't doubt anyone would uh, disagree with me on that. But it's a matter of making sure that that theoretically affects the heart, so that when we stand before God, we're going to hold our head high, knowing that we were faithful stewards of the gospel message. And may the gospel go forth from Calvary. May we be people who are gospel-phobic, not in the sense that we're afraid of sharing the gospel, but we become anxious when we can't share it. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you just for this opportunity to proclaim your word. And Lord, I pray that you'll make us gospel-phobic, so we'll be fearful of not sharing our faith. We just pray that the gospel message will ring forth from Calvary Bible Church. Lord, that you might see many people in Burbank, Pasadena, Glendale, and for that matter, the world, come to know Christ. May we be faithful stewards. May this church be pleasing to you, and may you bless it for our efforts to take the gospel message to the lost. I pray for all those who are convicted, who know they need to share the gospel. Lord, that they will seek to get trained, and seek to get encouraged, and and seek to get help. Sign up for the class, go to the missions conference, pray, ask someone for help. Lord, that we won't go at this alone, but all of us corporately will be sharing our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.